Well, last week, we were in Revelation Revealed Part 3, and I preached for about 54 minutes, taught on that, got all kinds of flack. People are like, man, you preached way too long. People were infuriated, hate, just pouring. And so I'm not going to make that mistake this time. I'm just telling you right now, I'm not going to make that mistake this time. I'm just kidding, but I did go a little long last time. I got carried away. It's a rare thing. I really was just testing y'all. And most of you failed the test. Most of you passed the test. A few of you failed the test. But uh, anyhow, it's hilarious. Uh, we are in Revelation Revealed. And tonight we're in part four. This is chapter two, part two. And we're going to spend some time in these seven churches. Uh, if you have not been here for this series, you can go catch up on the podcast. It's early on. But uh, I want to say a prayer, and then we're going to jump right into it with a little review and some introduction and moving on into some of these other churches. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness, for your goodness, for your word. I pray that you'd anoint me to speak. I pray that you'd just help us, Lord, as we look into these scriptures, Lord, these amazing scriptures, these letters that you wrote to these churches that apply to us as well. Father, just pray that you'd help us to see the truth here. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. Now, I told you last time how that, that Jesus chose these particular churches for a reason, down to the very names and the places, the names of the places where these churches were located. The relevancy and accuracy is compelling. Ephesus, we looked at last time, means desired one. And Jesus desired their love, but if you'll remember, they had left their first love. The church of Ephesus I believe, represents the church from the apostolic age, from 33 A.D. to around 100 A.D. They were zealous defenders of the truth, confrontational towards apostolic impersonators, yet somehow the church of Ephesus left their first love. And so the one who walked among the churches, the candlesticks, the one who held them in his hand, Jesus, told Ephesus, in essence, I desire you and that first love you had for me, but not this cold, calculated, clinical, technical, institutional kind of relationship that now you're offering me. And Jesus took it so seriously that he said to the church at Ephesus, if you don't repent and do the first works, and do it quickly. I'm, I'm coming to you quickly, and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. You and I are done. Now, this has some application for us today, and I want to wrap up Ephesus just, just a minute with this. We can get so focused on defending the truth that we become disconnected from the giver of the truth. And like the church of Ephesus, when this happens... We have disqualified ourselves from doing the work of the church because now we are making disciples 
in our own image. We are transmitting not from the heart, but only from the head. So it's very important that we have this idea of spirit and truth. Let me teach on this for just a second here. Are you with me? I want to give you a word of caution because as I as I say those words, I am not in any way discounting doctrine. Truth does matter. Doctrine does matter. It matters a great deal. Jude, the half-brother of the Jesus in Revelation, said that we are to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. So, yes, truth and doctrine, they matter. Here's a cool juxtaposition. In Revelation 2, Jesus told Ephesus, I'll reject you as a church if you do not come back to your first love and do the works you did at the beginning. Remember I told you about that, the first love? It's like when Valerie first fell in love with me, how crazy and gaga she went. It was just embarrassing all the time, Bobby. Embarrassing all the time. It was that first love, right? It was that first love. Jesus said, if you don't come back to your first love and do the works you did at the beginning, he said to the church at Ephesus, I'll reject you as a church. But in Hosea 4, 6, the Lord says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being priests. Remember in Revelation 1, it said that he has made us to be kings and priests. He said, I'll reject you from being priests for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I will also forget your children. So again, I see a correlation between spirit, Ephesus, from the heart, first love, and truth, Hosea, knowledge. You have to have both to keep the relationship alive. Are you with me? And, and isn't that the way it works even, you know, in our human relationships? Uh, the apostle Peter said in 1 Peter 3, 7, Husbands, dwell with your wife according to knowledge. So, Love her, love her with your heart, but you got to study that thing, right? That woman. I mean, she's complicated. I'm still trying to figure Valerie out. I dwell with her, but I'm still trying to figure. We've been married going on 30 years, and still she says things, she does things, and I'm like, what? what? Where did that come from? I don't understand. I have to study her. And, and, and figure her out so, so I, can, I have to adjust. I have to, I have to dwell with her according to knowledge. So it's not just heart, it's head, right? It's knowing, it's knowledge, it's study. It's the way it is with relationships. Jesus said the Father is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. By staying plugged into the Word, truth, and by staying plugged into the Spirit, our relationship with God grows and we make progress. It can't just be book knowledge. You can't just be a book knowledge Christian defending doctrine. You've got to have relationship from the heart, fellowship in the spirit with the Holy Ghost. 
You have to. That's how you make progress. Remember how Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches? He went on to say, a branch that does not make progress gets cut off. We have to have that that connection, that spiritual fellowship, worship, prayer, praying in tongues. Jude, Jude didn't just say contend earnestly for the faith. Jude, the same Jude said, pray in the Holy Ghost, building yourself up on your most holy faith. So it's the spirit and truth. Chuck Swindoll pointed something out to me. I love this. John 8, 37, Jesus said, you do not know me because my word has no place in you. Literally, it says my word has made no progress in you. You have to let the word get in your heart, not just your head. And you have to fellowship in the presence of God through worship, through prayer, through devotion to the Lord. We should make progress in our relationship with Jesus in spirit and in truth. Faith to faith, glory to glory. 2 Peter 3.18 says we're to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And remember last time I mentioned that first love was not just love for God. It was love for brothers and sisters as well. I mean, if you lose your love for God, how are you going to have love for one another? So it has to be first love was not just love for God. It extended out into our relationships with our brothers and sisters and our walk and responsibility in this commission into which we've been called, this great commission to love people, Jesus, people. We love the household of faith. Not just the church down the street, right? But we love the household of faith, and, and we love we love our brothers and sisters. But we love a, a lost and broken world. So if you lose your love for Jesus, that first love, it trickles down into every area of your life. I might add, not only should we pray, worship, get in the Word. I believe we should be activated in our local church. Serving in our local church. We've got Discover Life that has started. You've got to get involved in a local church community. Hello. You cannot live this life outside of that type of relationship. You're designed to live in community. Unfortunately, in most churches what happens is the Pareto principle is implemented. That is to say, 20% do 80% of the work. Can I be a pastor right now? 20% do 80% of the work. And and sometimes, you know, like as a pastor, as I try to get people involved and they refuse to get involved, for whatever reason, I feel like a failure. I feel like I've not communicated the reason we do what we do. We're trying to keep people from going to hell. And it's not just the Donovan show or these singers and musicians show. It's not just to show up and to watch a concert. It's setting the atmosphere. It's putting hope out there in the parking lot. It's a smile on somebody's face saying, you are welcome in this place. I don't care what hell you just walked out of. There's some heaven going on in this building, and I want you to know you're welcome here. 
And that takes place with parkers and greeters and ushers and all the teams that make this happen. It's vital that you get plugged in. Jesus and people and mission. Getting involved in the local church. You got to get involved in the local. Can somebody say amen? You got to remove the obstacles from somebody's path. You know, there were those guys that did that. They just moved rocks so, so the desperate could get to the, to, the, to the city of refuge. This is a city of refuge. It takes involvement. You know, when, when somebody asks you and they say, hey, man, we'd love for you to greet, that doesn't mean I want you to, to, to shake people's hands. I'm just, I'm just a pastor today. I got my pastor hat on. I go put my pastor hat on. You know I got a hat. Go put my pastor hat on. It's not just like shake somebody's. It's like love on somebody. Make them feel welcome. Make them feel special. Well, I don't feel like it. Who cares how you feel? It's about them. It's about connecting them to Jesus. If you sow a little bit into somebody else's life, it'll make you feel a whole lot better. Amen? If you help somebody else break their addiction, it might help you break your addiction. You get your eyes on the prize. You get your eyes on Jesus. You get your eyes on the first love, and you watch what happens in your own life. Hey, that love breaks every chain. You know what I'm saying? Love changes. Where are you feeling that love now like you felt it when you first came to Jesus? If not, you've left your first love. If you're not ready to roll up your sleeves and do whatever he says, You've left your first love. First love, commitments, get people to foreign mission fields. First love, commitments, get people to open their blooming mouth and witness to somebody about the goodness of the Lord. First love, commitments. First love gets people to do the work of ministry that cold, calculated, institutional junk, just filling a slot, doesn't cut. Preaching. With just head knowledge, it doesn't get anything. It's got to come from the heart. It's got to come from a passion. It's got to come from a first love. When I'm getting cold, I can tell it. I got to stir it up, man. I got to stir up that fire. I got to stir up that gift. I got to go back and go to that altar and say, God, touch me again. I remember what you did for me. I remember the day. I remember the hour. I remember how on fire I was. I want a taste of that again, Lord. First love. Ephesus, that's what God desires. Ephesus means desired one. That's what God desires. Are you with me? <clears throat> so we're just getting started. Let's move on to Smyrna. Because you know I'm not going to preach for 54 minutes. Verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Let's stop there. Smyrna was a persecuted church. Everybody say persecuted. I don't mean they had bad headaches. I don't mean people made fun of them for their beliefs, for their standards, for their walk with God. As a matter of fact, what I do mean is that many of them were being tortured, tortured, tortured by the cruel Roman Empire and were dying. 
So Jesus addresses them with a name from chapter 1. Remember, he's going to pull those names that he mentioned in chapter 1. He said, he who was dead and came back to life. Jesus knew what it was like to lay his life down. He could relate to the suffering of the saints at Smyrna. He could relate to the martyrs of the church at Smyrna. Smyrna. The name Smyrna comes from a word that means myrrh, M-Y-R-R-H. Try that on words with friends. Do you remember what the Magi brought to Jesus in that Christmas story we call it? They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold was because he was a king. Frankincense symbolized his being anointed as a priest, the great high priest. And myrrh spoke of his death. It was used in burial, in embalming. Later in the book of Revelation, we'll see gold and frankincense mentioned, but not myrrh, because his death is behind him. He's alive forevermore. But the church of Smyrna was suffering even to the point of death. Hence, the name Smyrna represents the persecuted church, laying down their lives for the cause of Christ. Now, Smyrna was located about 40 miles north of Ephesus on a gulf which reached 30 miles inland. It's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. This is the only mention of this town. The church being there was probably the result of Paul's teaching in that rented school of Tyrannus in Ephesians. We're not sure. Smyrna is an ancient city. It's modern-day Izmar in Turkey, but it was founded around 1,000 B.C. It's ancient. It changed hands a few times, was, was destroyed in 580 B.C., laid in ruins for 300 years until it was finally rebuilt. Smyrna became part of the vast Roman Empire in 133 B.C. It had two excellent harbors, several major highways, I-10, uh, I-12 went through it, and, and it made it fabulously wealthy. It was second only to Ephesus in trade and exports. It was noted for its tremendous beauty and was built to be a model of all future cities in the land. It was called the perfect city. One writer called it the glory of Asia and the first of all the cities in Asia. For example, it was considered to be the first in beauty, the first in literature, the first in loyalty to Rome. I think it's fascinating that Jesus refers to himself, to these people, as the first and the last. Al Maxi points out Smyrna had a spacious straight street which ran one into the other. On the side of the street were temples, temples to Sibel, Zeus, Apollo, Asclepius, Aphrodite. The city was also a center for the worship of Dionysus who was originally a goddess of fruitfulness and vegetation, but who later became the goddess of wine. Every year, the priest of this cult enacted the death, burial, and resurrection of Dionysus. I'm going to get it. Interestingly, Jesus says to this church, it's me who was dead and alive, not your old false goddess. The city had a large library, a public theater, Filled with monuments to pagan deities and great men, a lot of wealth, 
large wine industry. It was also an important city politically. Listen to this. And Rome loved Smyrna. It had always backed Rome in her battles and campaigns. It gave a donation of clothes to the army during a campaign against Mithridates in the Far East. Rome showed her gratitude by heaping many honors upon Smyrna and holding court there. Smyrna was very conscious of its greatness. It was said to be the most municipally proud of all the cities of Asia Minor. Nobel Prize winning historicist Christian Momsen called Smyrna a paradise of municipal, municipal vanity. In other words, it was a city that was stuck on itself. Talk about civic pride. Guzik points out in 196 B.C., Smyrna built the first temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome, the spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. And he says once the spirit of Rome was worshipped, it wasn't much of a step to begin to worship the dead emperors of Rome. And then it was only a small step after that, and this is important, to begin to worship the living emperors of Rome. And then just a small step beyond that to make this worship an evidence of your allegiance to Rome and to civic pride. In A.D. 23, Smyrna won the privilege over 11 other cities to build the first temple to worship the emperor Tiberius Caesar. Smyrna was a leading city in the Roman cult for emperor worship. The Roman emperor Domitian was the first to demand worship under the title Lord from the people of the Roman Empire as a test of political loyalty. According to ancient church history, it was under the reign of Domitian that John was sent, banished, to the Isle of Patmos. Barclay says emperor worship had begun as a spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome. In the days of Domitian, though, the final step was taken and Caesar worship became compulsory. Once a year, the Roman citizen must burn a pinch of incense on an altar to Caesar And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. And many of the Christians refused to worship the Caesar. Polycarp, who studied at the feet of Apostle John, and who was the leader at the church of Smyrna in later years, refused to make the sacrifice. As a result, he was burned at the stake during the Olympic Games on Saturday, February 23rd, 155 A.D. And when he died, he made these famous words, 80 and six years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? In Smyrna, the church was filled with heroes like that. In John's day, Smyrna had a population of about 100,000. And look at verse 9. Jesus says to them, I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This is our kind, lovely, sweet Jesus laying down the law. Okay? Remember when Saul of Tarsus was persecuting the church and Jesus confronted him, knocked him down, 
Saul said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, whom you persecuted, whom you're persecuting. The idea is Saul was going to persecute the church. Jesus said, when you've done it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you've done it unto me. He took it personally. So here he's saying, I know your works. I know what you're going through. It's not a secret. I see you. I see your suffering, your tribulation, your poverty, and the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. The Christians at Smyrna were suffering economic sanction. You've heard of that when it comes to, you know, North Korea and Iran. Well, here they were suffering economic sanctions just because they were Christians. They were fired from their jobs. They were evicted from their homes. They lived in poverty. The, the Greek here for poverty, it means abject poverty, extreme poverty. Hebrews 10.34, I love this. It says, for you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. The plundering of your goods. They didn't. They weren't poor because they were lazy. They were poor because there were economic sanctions levied against them. Then Jesus said, but you are rich. They see you as being poor and deprived. And while you may be suffering and suffering tribulation, you really are rich. You're rich in salvation. You're rich in a walk with God. You're rich in a fellowship with Jesus, in the power of the Holy Ghost, in the name of Jesus. There's a story, I love this story, that goes back to the Renaissance papacy. When a man walked uh, with the Pope and marveled at the splendors and riches of the Vatican, the Pope told him, we no longer have to say what Peter told the lame man, silver and gold have I none. To which the guy said, but neither can you say rise, take up your bed and walk. This church was rich in their relationship with God. Jesus doesn't have a bad word to say about them. They were rich. How much would you pay? How much would you love for Jesus to look at you and say, I find no fault. Good job. Sorry you're suffering. But I've got promises laid up for you. Trust me. Nothing bad said about these people. Jesus said, you're rich. Rich. They were also rich in their leadership. Polycarp was one of their pastors. That's some strong leaders, right? That said, no, I'm not going to worship the Caesar. I'm going to call on the name of my God. He ain't never done me anything but good. That's rich right there. Church, you thank God for, for godly leadership. Thank God for pastors that stay true to the course, amen, that don't compromise and roll over and are so easy. Thank God for leadership that stays the course, stands strong, man. If you've got that, you're rich. I know it sounds self-serving coming from me as a pastor, but if you've got that, I'm telling you, you're rich. So who were the ones that, said they were Jews, but were not. And what in the world is this synagogue of Satan? Well, this city also had a large Jewish population who would often 
rat out the Christians to the authorities. They would tell on them. This is just a fact of the day. They would incite riots, chaos, and violence against the church. William Barclay says this, In a city where the splendor of heathen worship might well have suffocated the life out of the Christian church, in a city where the pride of men looked down on the humble Christians with arrogant contempt, in a city where every Christian was between the devil of the demands of Caesar worship and the deep sea of Jewish slander and malignancy, there were Christians who were faithful unto death. Powerful. Paul would say that it's not the circumcision that makes one a Jew. It's whether they know Jesus that makes them a true. You may be an ethnic descendant of Abraham, but not a spiritual one unless you know Jesus. I believe that's what's being referred to in that text there. Look at verses 10 through 11. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. So let's unpack this. I I love the straightforwardness of Jesus. He said, the devil is about to throw you into prison. Now, who was it? It was the Roman authorities, but they were doing the work of the devil. They were guilty, but the devil was behind it all. And Jesus said, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. The devil is. And then this 10 days, oh my goodness, I'm telling you, these churches represent eras, ages of history. That's why they're in the order they're in. If they were in any other order, it would not work out at all. The names are significant. This is the persecuted church. Ten days, I believe, equal ten of the most heinous persecutions that took place in the church under ten Roman emperors who were under the influence of the devil. First under Nero, 54 to 68. Nero had his wife and mother killed, burned Rome, blamed the Christians. Listen, and and modern, modern education tries to whitewash this, tries to change history, tries to paint paganism in a favorable light and Christianity in an unfavorable light. You hear what I'm saying? You can't believe everything you, you hear from a professor uh, or, or watch on YouTube. <laughs> Nero, who had his wife and mother killed, burned Rome, blamed the Christians, killed thousands and thousands of Christians. Some were dressed in shirts made stiff with wax, hung on trees, set on fire to light his gardens. Some were wrapped in, in animal skins, bloody skins, and then put out to the wild beast that would tear them apart. Peter was crucified under this persecution, and Paul was beheaded. Nero, 54 to 68. Second, under Domitian, 80, 81 
to 96. Domitian was known for his cruelty. He killed his brother and then raised the second persecution against Christians. In his rage, he killed many members of the Roman Senate, either out of revenge or to confiscate their estates. It was during it, uh, under this persecution that John, uh, history says, was boiled in oil but survived and was banished to Patmos. Timothy was also killed during this time period. Domitian made a law that no Christian once brought before a tribunal could be exempted from any punishment unless he renounced his faith. You had to deny Christ. Tremendous persecution. Third persecution under Trajan, 98 to 117. According to Pliny II, who saw thousands of Christians being put to death daily, he, he was moved with pity and wrote a letter to Trajan certifying that these people did nothing against the Roman law worthy of death. Still nothing was done to save them. It was during this time that Ignatius was martyred and uh, Eustachius, considered to be a brave, successful Roman commander, he was ordered by the emperor to join in this sacrifice to celebrate his victories. But being a Christian, he refused it. Trajan had him and his family murdered. The fourth great persecution under Antonius Pius and Marcus Aurelius, you've heard those names, 138 to 180. Although he had noble principles, Marcus Aurelius persecuted the Christians because he was afraid they would destroy the state. It was during this time that Polycarp of Smyrna was martyred. Fifth persecution under Severus, 193 to 211. He, he was healed, at least history says this, because of the influence and the prayers of Christians. And he favored them because of this in his history, in his life. But because of the prejudice and fury of the multitudes, he gave in and slaughtered Christians. Irenaeus was among those beheaded during this time. Irenaeus was a disciple of Polycarp. Under Maximus, the sixth great persecution took place, 235 to 238. In some provinces, everything was done to exterminate all Christians. Slain without trial, buried indiscriminately in heaps. Seventh was under Decius, 249 to 251. This persecution was brought on because of Decius's hatred for his predecessor, Philip, who was a Christian, and partly by his jealousy concerning the amazing increase of Christianity. Heathen temples were being forsaken, falling apart. The church was growing unbelievably. Uh, and, and, and unbelievers were taking the law into their own hands and killing Christians, thinking they were doing the empire a favor. Some Christians were sacrificed to false gods or tortured to death. And, and some did recant after torture but, but, and died soon thereafter. It was a grisly time. The eighth took place under Valerian. The martyrs that fell during this time were innumerable. Neither rank, gender, nor age were regarded. The edict of 257 and 258 ordered all Christian leaders to be put to death, pastors that is, and did not take part, that did not take part in sacrificing to the gods. The ninth was under Aurelian, 274 to 287. In the year 286, a most remarkable event takes place. Maxi says this. A legion of soldiers consisting of over 6,000 men were all Christians. The legion was called the Theban Legion. 
named from the place they were raised. They were ordered to march over the Alps into Gaul. The emperor ordered a general sacrifice in which the whole army was to assist. They were to take an oath of allegiance and swear at the same time to assist the extermination of Christians in Gaul. On hearing this, the whole legion refused to sacrifice, refused to take the oath. The emperor was so enraged, he ordered every tenth soldier to be butchered in front of the legion. After this, the legion was still committed to their faith, so every tenth soldier was slain again, thinking this would cause the men to recant. They didn't. And eventually, the entire legion was destroyed, butchered. And we have the date, September 22nd, 286 A.D. The 10th came under Diocletian from 292 to 304. During this persecution, the emperor ordered four edicts against the Christians. The first one ordered that church buildings be destroyed, sacred scriptures be burned. Do you hear what I'm saying? Church at Smyrna, persecuted church. Christians of position lost their honor. Those of lower rank lost their liberty. Death was not pronounced as a penalty, but still many were killed. The second edict, leaders were thrown into prison, pastors. The third edict caused Christian leaders to suffer cruel tortures. The fourth edict decreed that all Christians everywhere should sacrifice or be exterminated. John's disciple Ignatius of Antioch was fed to wild beasts. Polycarp of Smyrna burned at the stake. Polycarp's disciple was Hippolytus. He got into a fight with a bishop of Rome. He was killed. He was considered to be the first anti-pope. And we'll get into that, folks. We're going to touch on some Catholic history as well. I don't want to offend anybody, but we're going to touch on some Roman Catholicism. Hippolytus' disciple was Irenaeus of Lyons or Gaul. It's said that he was killed too. Ten days of intense Suffering, this was prophetic, prophetic. There was a mountain where Smyrna was, Mount Pegasus. There were several temples on the top of this mountain that glittered like a crown. It resembled a crown, this mountain. It was called the crown of Smyrna. The crown city was a nickname for the city. Jesus said to these people, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. It all connected. The bottom line is this, even when times were tough, they stayed true. Spirit and truth, heart and soul, not one rebuke to these precious saints of God. They were just being who they were supposed to be, doing what they were supposed to do. And of the seven churches of Asia Minor, They lasted through those 10 days and later through Muslim persecution until this day. They're the only one that existed into the modern era. If you have ears to hear, Jesus said, hear this message. Don't quit, endure hard times. Are you with me? Endure the hard times. The difficult times. We're so soft. I've been going 39 minutes. I got like one minute to go. The modern church is so soft. We're just so easily swayed. Somebody makes fun of us. First of all, there's hardly any difference between the modern church and the world. 
You can't tell the difference hardly. In the olden days, folks, it was clear. They worshiped the Lord. Something's different about them. Well, what made them different? I'm just going to tell you they lived differently. They looked differently. They behaved differently. When we start doing that and somebody gives us a hard time, we're so soft, we back off. We're like, oh, man, you know, my bad. What do I need to do to fit in? I don't have to fit in. This world is not my home. I'm not living for down here. I'm going to tell you something else. I'm going to teach my babies. I'm not here to get popular on social media. I'm not here to, to, to make the pop idols of this day, be they country, be they rock and roll, be they rap, be they Hollywood, be ever who they may. I'm not here to live like them, be like them, please them, please this jacked up culture. I'm here to live for Jesus. And if they give me a hard time, so be it. So be it. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. We will live differently. We will love differently. We will behave differently. We are not of this world, church. We are not of this world. Stand with me right now. We are not of this world. We are different. Why can't we ever come to grips with the fact that we're supposed to be different? We're supposed to be different. And I get it, oh my goodness, like we try to be, I'm wearing a little wristband that says vintage relevant. We try to be like the modern, uh, the, the first church, and but relate in this modern world. I'm not saying try to be irrelevant, but don't sin trying to be relevant. Live a separated life. And I don't mean you got to wear a suit and tie to church. If you do, great, I do. I did Sunday. But you don't have to. That's not what makes us good. I know plenty, hello, of people that wear suits and ties that live sinful lives. Well, I got quiet, right? I should have thrown this picture. One of my favorite pictures is a picture. Children, you won't understand this. But there's a picture of Richard Nixon. And it says, a suit and tie and a nice haircut doesn't make you all that, you know. <laughs> and I'm sure God's forgiven Richard Nixon and asked, you know, whatever. Praise the Lord. I love Richard Nixon. <laughs> I mean, Louis Farrakhan wears a suit and tie. Come on now. It's not about... That is saying live your life in such a way that you please God and who cares what anybody else thinks, amen? Who cares? That's what this church was doing. We're going to see there were other churches that are coming that didn't fare so well. They got some massive rebukes. There were compromising churches. There were eras and ages. We have come to a place in history where we have a little of all seven of these churches of Asia in our midst. You could say, you know, LifePoint is X percent Ephesus, you know, X percent Smyrna, X percent 
Pergamos. And we could, every church has a percentage. And so it, it's a learning curve. He that has ears to hear. It, it, the, in the genius of God, it was for them and it's for us today. And it's been for the church from the time, that time on. We can learn. He that has ears. Folks, I want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful unto death. Enter into the joy. Enter into the rest. Here's your crown. And then I tell you what, when I get in his presence, I'm going to take that crown. I'm going to throw it at his feet. Because he is worthy, amen? He's the last Adam. He's my redeemer. He's the one that has redeemed me from the curse of the law, having become a curse for me. In the name of Jesus, I'm going to give him praise on that day. Are you? Amen. Can you lift your hands to him right now? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, precious lamb of the living God. Oh, hallelujah. Father, may life point, no matter what comes down the pike, it's the 70th year of Israel's becoming a, a nation in the modern era. And God, what's going over there seems to have prophetic implications. An embassy. Jerusalem as the capital. Prophetic implications. Who knows? If the one we're going to see later in Revelation, that Antichrist, that false prophet rises in just such an opportune moment and the whole world chases after him. Father, I pray that there would be a church in Prairieville, Louisiana, that when the whole world falls for him, stands in the word and stands for the truth, spirit and in truth, heart, felt worship, knowledge-based, understanding, walking in truth, walking in word, Father, walking in relationship, progressing in our relationship, not stunted, not cut off, Lord, but still engaged, still intact, our faith in place, our relationship good. And if they promote economic sanctions against the church, people will say, oh, you're extremely poor but Jesus you say oh but you're rich I got a crown laid up for you 